Well, good morning. My name is Zach. I am the pastor of Community and Global Outreach here. And every year we get to dedicate a month to what we call practical love. And we're, during this month, we give special focus or emphasis on our missions, global and local missions. And maybe if you're not familiar with kind of the history or how it works, uh, I just want to paint kind of a quick picture of how community and global outreach, our missions work here. So under that big umbrella of community and global outreach, we have, what, you know, we kind of like our regular activities, the things that are going on on a regular basis, whether it's weekly or monthly. And so those are the activities that we actually are supported out of the regular giving. So your regular giving supports some of these activities. So missionaries, the local ministries that we have here, the local partners that we partner with, a lot of that comes out of the regular giving. And then for practical love, we use that for strategic projects that we're doing with our partners. And these are usually more like once a year type of activities. So like the meal packing that we do, that's one of those practical love projects that we support. And there's a lot more. As Jason shared, the focus for this month is going to be faithfulness. We're looking at examples of faithfulness in the Bible. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because for practical love, I love to highlight and share stories. I love to share the stories of ways that we as a faith family have had an impact in our community and around the world. And that impact is made possible because of your faithful generosity your generosity of your time and your resources, allowing us to share the love of Jesus with people in very tangible ways. And so I want to encourage you guys. I want to thank you guys and encourage you guys and allow you guys to see this is what we're being a part of. Now, the second reason for highlighting stories of faithfulness is because we want to challenge ourselves to continue to ask God, what does it mean to be faithful to you in this season? In this season of life, what does it mean to be faithful to him? And as Jason pointed out in the, the video, out there, we have some people, a lot of them are from Rolling Hills, that represent a variety of ministries and organizations that we partner with. And my ask of you is not go out there and commit and sign your life away, say, hey, I'm going to go serve with these people. Actually, my ask is a little more simple. I would really love for us as a faith family to grow in our awareness of these organizations that we partner with. And so go out there, just get to know them, get to meet some of the people that attend church here and um, serve and get to know the organizations, their heart and ways that can, um, people can serve. Because maybe God will challenge you. Maybe God will say, hey, I want you to serve in this capacity or that. But I also recognize that there's a lot of good things in the world that we can say yes to, a lot of good opportunities to serve and care for people. And there's just not enough time in the day, not enough days in the week for us to say yes to them all. So my ask is not that you commit your life away, but just go and grow an awareness of the opportunities that we have as a faith family to serve. Now, with that said, practical love this month is going to look a little different. And so Bill's going to come on up and share a little bit about that. All right. Um, we will be sharing with you some things that practical love last year, the money that we raised, what projects got done this year as a result of that. So that was going to be fun. And we'll do that each week for the month of February. Um, but we have a new challenge that we want you to become aware of. And, and if you're part of the Rolling Hills family or you've been here for a while and you, and you just appreciate and been blessed by what's going on here. Um, I just want to give you some family time here. And if you're new, welcome to listen in. Feel no obligation to take part in what I'm going to be talking about. But um, as you know, we are in the process of, of searching for our next lead pastor. You, you met our lead pastor search team here last week, and um, they are doing a phenomenal job. I'm so 
thankful for um, just the quality of people he's brought together to find that person who is just going to fit us. They are, you know, the, their mission and their, and their um, vision for the future just aligns with us and um, they will just flourish with us. And that's, and they are, um, you know, making headway in, in that process. And so thankful for that. I'm also thankful for a couple things that you might not know about. Do you know the last three years we have made an intentional effort to um, align all of our ministries in an overarching leadership development process that we don't want to um, just use people in ministry, but we want to develop them as leaders in ministry. And today we have more people developed in, in ministry who are serving than we've ever had before. And that's a continuing process. It's slowly becoming part of our DNA. And uh, we don't talk about that a lot from up front, but it's something really significant. And uh, so I just wanna um, let you know about that. We have, um, we have growing ministry. We have, you know our middle school ministry is twice as big right now than it was last year. Um, our children's ministry is growing Almost every month, it is growing and growing and growing, which means young families. We have more and more young families coming. The fact is that today we have 20% more people than we did last year at this time. And so it's, it's really exciting. And all that's happening in the midst of a leadership transition. And so God is at work and doing some really exciting things. And I am genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, so excited about the future and how God is going to use Rolling Hills. Um, but there's a challenge that was unexpected, but that's, it's real. And that is, um, you know, December is for nonprofits and for churches. It's the biggest giving month of the year. And our December's giving was the smallest giving that we've had since 2007. And so, um, that makes a big impact on us. And so as a faith family, you need to be aware that we got a challenge in front of us in that we're about $350,000 behind um, our projected giving. And we built a budget on our projected giving and, we're, and we didn't you know, inflate it. We were very conservative and we said, okay, let's build a budget this year based upon last year's actual giving. And that's what we have. And yet December really... Um, uh, put a big challenge in front of us. And so it's a challenge that, that if, if this is your faith family and this is part of your um, uh, regular church activities is coming to here and being part of what we're doing, then I'm gonna ask you to pray. And uh, you know, as, as Zach said, our general giving really is the reason why we can have so many ministry partners and not only impact our community, but all over the world, things are um, being done as a result of our regular ongoing giving. And so before we think about, um, am I going to support these projects this year? We need to shore up our just regular ongoing giving. And so would you join me in praying, um, God, how do you want me to, well, pray for us as a church that we can, Take, you know, take big bites out of this deficit. But also, um, how am I supposed to be involved with that? And the number one thing I'm asking is, would you join me in prayer? And would, as your faith family, one of the things that you've heard me talk about in the fall is we want more people going from fans of what God's doing here 
to owners of what God's doing here. And so part of that is caring for and praying about the challenges that we face. And so would you um, join me in doing that? And as we do that, we are, um, we'll report back to you, how, how, how's it going? And over the next couple months, if we see trends that are going like, oh my goodness, I think we're going to catch up. And that's our prayer, is that we just, we would catch up to the projections. Um, good news is, you know, one of the things, did we lose a bunch of givers? Did, it's like, no, we had the same giving base as we did last year. And so I think inflation is impacting us and those type of things. But uh, would you pray about being part of the solution for that? And then we'll let you know how we're doing. If, if we you know, do not take care of that deficit, then obviously we have to do some stuff about it. And, and that means um, downsizing our staff. And that's the last thing that we wanna do. And everybody, I mean, each person here has a, somebody who's had such an impact on your life that's in, on our staff and we would hate to uh, have to do that. So we're bringing it to your attention, we're asking you to pray, and we're praying that God would just grow us up in the area of giving. I mean, um, it's not something I like to talk about a lot, but here's the reality of it, is it is, spark, it is part of our spiritual disciplines. God says that if we get connected to how generous his grace is towards us, we're ultimately, I mean, it's almost hard to believe how good God is to us. And then that changes our heart regarding being generous to others and being generous to his work. So much so that for our second Corinthians chapter eight, verse one and two, Paul's writing to the church of Corinth and he's bragging about the churches in Macedonia. And he's saying, I want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia in the, in the midst of their severe test of affliction, in other words, they're being persecuted for their faith, and their abundance of joy, which means that, man, they are connected to the heart of a gracious God, and how walking with him is just a joy-filled experience every day, even though they're facing hardships. So they're, they're being persecuted, and yet they have joy, and their extreme poverty that they're struggling, they're struggling financially. And what's the result? It's overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And one of the number one things that we think of, no matter how much money you make, no matter where you live, no matter what situation we are, we think, yeah, I would like to be more generous, I just don't make enough money. And God's saying, if you're connected to my generosity, your generosity should be growing no matter where you're at in, in, um, in your situation. And so I wanna, do, I wanna offer you something. And that is, I, more and more people don't have a spending plan. They don't know even where their money's going. They just know it's gone. You know, and it's like, where did it go? And if you're somebody who would appreciate somebody who is good at this to sit down with you and say, hey, let's make a spending plan that reflects your goals and that puts you at a lifestyle that you can afford and not have to get more into debt. We have people here at Rolling Hills who are great at that, who have helped many other families um, get out of debt and, and leverage the resources God has given them in a way that matches their goals instead of wondering what happened. And so 
what I'd like you to do, if, if that's you and you'd appreciate somebody to sit down with you and, and talk through that with you, use that card in the seat back in front of you, write down your information, uh, your contact information, say, hey, I'd love to talk to somebody about a spending plan. And then on the way out, there's boxes by the doors. Just drop that card in the box and uh, we'll have somebody get a hold of you and, uh, and help you out in those areas. But my number one ask is let's start praying and let's ask God, um, God, would you take care of this? And also, would you challenge me on how you want me to grow in the area of, of generosity? So we'll talk about this throughout this month, but that's the, the change is, is uh, before you think about giving to projects, which we're totally excited about you doing that, but we also know we need to shore up our regular giving. Um, and so would you, would you engage with that? All right, each week we're gonna take on a different book of the Old Testament and look at the faithfulness of God. Today it's the book of Jonah. And so let me just tell you a couple things about Jonah and the, and the time in which he lived. Jonah was a prophet, he was a Galilean prophet which means he comes from the area of Galilee. And that's, you know, fast forward to the time of Jesus, that's where Jesus primarily ministered, was northern Israel um, in the Galilee area. Now, Jonah was a prophet during the time of the divided kingdom, all right? And so um, Joshua brought the children of Israel, took, took the leadership from Moses, brought them into Israel where they established their kingdom. Um, ultimately, uh, King Saul, then King David, and then Solomon rule were the kings over that kingdom. After Solomon died, the kingdom divided. That There was um, a, an argument over who should be leading, and it became a divided kingdom. The south was called Judah. The north is called Israel, all right? So that northern kingdom is where Jonah is. And he is a prophet for that kingdom and he's serving under the rule of the king of the north, king of Israel, and his name is Jeroboam II. And he is one pathetic loser. I mean, he is a bad king. He just so happens that it is a prosperous time in the northern kingdom where he's leading, um, but he's, he's just evil. He, he's forgetting about God. He's taking on the worship of other kinds of gods. He's totally immoral, and he's, leading, he's modeling that to the people who are just marching right after him and living right after him, okay? And so Jonah is a prophet speaking against that, and so he also has a couple other prophets who are really focusing on um, the evilness of, of Israel during that time, and I forget who it was. I think it's Amos, Amos and somebody else. Um, who were focusing on Israel, okay, and, and saying, hey, we need to get our act together. God will judge us if we do not uh, recognize we need to follow him. But God goes to Jonah and says, not only do I care about my people in Israel, but I care about every nation. I care about every people. And so I want you to go to Nineveh and warn them of judgment that's coming, but also they can have freedom from that judgment if they turn away from their wickedness and turn to me. And so Jonah said, hey, I'm pretty good here. Um, I'm good reaching out to our people, but you're asking me to go to our enemy, 
You're asking me to go to people who are evil, who are a clear and present danger to our nation. And so let's look on this map here and we'll show you just, okay, there's Israel, the green, uh, big green arrow. So Judah's to the south, Israel's to the north. That's where um, Jonah is. And God's asking him to go 500 miles to Nineveh, up to the blue arrow, which is in the kingdom of Assyria. Nineveh is a great city, eventually would become the capital city of the Assyrian nation. Assyria is a growing power, and they're known for their cruelty, that they're just barbaric in how that when they conquer people, what they do to those people, and it's people are living in fear of them. And God's saying, Jonah, I want you to go there. And Jonah is saying, um, God, I'm good here. And what you're asking me to do is a challenge that I am not comfortable with, that it's, it's, it's overwhelming to me. And I just do not want to step into that. And so we're going to walk through that story, and, and Zach's going to walk us through it. Thanks, Bill, for setting me up there. Um, so one of the reasons I had asked Bill to kind of give us some of the background information for the stories, because when we're going through a story like this, it's helpful to know some of the things that are going on so that way we understand maybe why people did what they did, thought what they thought. And really, I enjoy the book of Jonah because God has a way of like flipping things upside down, flipping our expectations on our head. And as Bill shared, like God, asked, God starts off the book doing that, asking his prophet, his uh, special messenger to go to Nineveh. So these people that are his enemy, the enemy of Jonah, enemy of Israel, enemy of God's chosen people, he's sending them his message to them. Like his people, they're struggling on their own. Why send your messenger to over there when your people need the help? But God is already flipping kind of like our expectations on our head a little bit. And if you put up the map, Jonah's like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And so Jonah hops on a ship and he starts heading towards this place called Tarshish. And Tarshish, if you can see, it's like about as far, like we think that might have been the edge of the known world for them. And so Jonah was literally going, willing to go to the ends of the earth to avoid helping Nineveh out. And so Jonah's disobeying, disobeying God, but God's not going to let him off the hook. Not that easy. And so God sends this giant storm to threaten the destruction of the ship and all the lives on board. And the sailors, they're frantically trying to figure out what do we need to do? And so they're calling out to their gods. They're throwing cargo overboard, but nothing is working. And then the captain, he discovers Jonah. He's below deck asleep. And he is living. He's like, what are you doing? We're about to die. Get up there. Do your part to help save us. Cry out to your God. Do whatever you can to help save us. And eventually what they do is they cast lots and the lots land on Jonah, identifying him as the culprit responsible for this storm. And so they're like, who are you? Where are you from? Who is this God that you serve? And so Jonah, he, he tells him, he's like, well, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, who's the God of Israel. But really, he's, he's more than just the God of Israel. He's the God of the universe, the God of the heavens, the earth. He created everything. Land, sea, sky, you see it. He created it. 
And this sparks fear in the sailors. And I wonder if some of that fear is them realizing that these things that they worship, these gods that they were crying out to, they're child's play compared to God. This God of Jonah, he's the real deal. And so they, they turned to Jonah and said, well, if you're responsible, if you're the man that's threatening our lives or your, your, your actions are the, um, threatening our lives, what must we do to be saved? What do we need to do to save our lives? And Jonah tells them, you're going to have to kill me. Like, you're going to have to throw me overboard. And not against my will, like, please throw me overboard. And if I was the sailors and I had just learned that Jonah was the man responsible for threatening my life, I probably wouldn't think twice if Jonah's being willing. It's like, okay, here you go. Let me help. But to the sailors' credit, and again, this is where things kind of get flipped on their heads. The sailors actually didn't want to do that. They, they resisted it and they kept trying to figure out how to save the ship until they realized it was impossible. And then they reluctantly threw Jonah into the ocean or the sea. And God calmed the sea and the storm was calm and the sailors realized that their lives had been spared. And so the sailors, their response was to begin worshiping Yahweh, this God of Jonah, Jonah's God, they wanted to worship him. And the neat thing is God wasn't even done with Jonah either. God sent this large fish to swallow Jonah. And for three days, Jonah was in the belly of that fish until God ordered that fish to spit Jonah back out onto dry land. And you know, if the story ended right there, that's actually a pretty decent story. You've got God using the disobedience of one of his prophets to help bring these people, these Gentile sailors that didn't know him into a knowledge of him where they're worshiping him. And he kind of saved Jonah's life in the process, even though Jonah didn't deserve it. But God's not done. He's not done with Nineveh and he's not done with Jonah. And so God calls Jonah a second time and says, go to Nineveh. And this time Jonah seemingly obeys. He goes to Nineveh. But I say seemingly because the text tells us that Nineveh was this large city and it, took, it would take somebody three days to walk across. But then it immediately tells us that Jonah, he spent only one day walking through the town and warning people, hey, watch out, you know, destruction's coming, before bouncing. And I, I kind of wonder if Jonah was trying to sabotage his efforts, if he was doing this half-hearted uh, like job at warning them because he didn't really want to see them turn. So Jonah leaves the town and is sitting outside the city waiting. And this is where I think really, things really get interesting because if I was the king of Nineveh, I'm like, who are you? Like, who's this guy causing all this commotion? Oh, you claim to be a prophet for this God, for, oh, that little nation below us that we're kind of beating up on, we're picking on? Wait, your God doesn't like that we're being mean to you? Oh, real convenient. Your God's telling us to stop, and if we don't, we're going to get destroyed. Well, our God's not telling us this. But that's not what they do. And... I wonder if there's something going on there because, well, let's just go here. Let's just go with this. So if you guys will put up um, that image, you, throughout the Bible, you'll hear this name, Dagon. There's a couple, it's mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. It's the name of this God. It's, it's a fish God. And there's archaeological evidence that suggests that even in Nineveh and Assyria, people worshiped and served this fish God. 
I wonder if God was trying to send a message to the Ninevites using a giant fish to deliver Jonah. It's almost like he's trying to take, like, kind of like take a shot at Dagon and saying, hey, you guys, all you Assyrians, you think this is a God? Well, I'm gonna make the thing that you serve, serve me by delivering my messenger with my message to you guys. And it caught their attention. I think it did. And like, it might get, I think that that example or the, the, the symbolism might get lost on us. But imagine if God was gonna try to send a messenger to us today and try to warn us. And I'm just, I'm coming up with a hypothetical situation. Let's pretend there's like a lot of evil. We're doing all the same evil things that Assyria is. We're cutting people up. We're murdering them. We're really brutal. And God sends two messengers to us to warn us. Because maybe, maybe our idolatry is politics. And so he sends these two messengers into our church room and they come walking in on a donkey and on an elephant. I think the political imagery is not going to get lost on a lot of us. And I wonder if that's kind of what's going on with Nineveh. They see how God brought Jonah to them. And they understood the little subtle message that God was sending in the process. And they responded positively. Uh, in Jonah 3, it tells us that the king, the king, when the king got word, he orders everyone, himself included, all the way down to the, the lowliest of peasants and even animals to fast and mourn in hopes that maybe this God will turn away from his judgment. They got the message. Now, Jonah, on the other hand, sadly, he's still sitting outside the city on this hill waiting for the destruction of Nineveh. And when he realizes that this destruction isn't coming, when it seems like God's probably going to show mercy to them. He unleashes on God this furious rant. He says, Lord, this is why I didn't want to go. I knew this was a possibility. I knew that you were gracious, that you were kind, that you were merciful, that you're willing to turn away from your judgment as if those were all bad things. He says that. He's like, I knew this was a possibility. And if I was God at this point, you know, I, I might kind of like want to, I might just say, you know, okay, Jonah, my mission is accomplished over here. Your little complaint right now, well, that's nothing new. You knew that about me. Uh, yes, God says that about himself in Exodus 34. So like, if you're going to throw a pity party, go ahead. You throw your pity party. I'm looking at Nineveh. I'm seeing this large city turn away from their wicked and evil behavior. I'm happy but he doesn't actually give up on Jonah. He actually continues to engage. And what he does is first, God sends this plant. He causes this plant to grow and this plant provides Jonah relief from the elements. It's really hot, it's really windy. And so Jonah is experiencing some relief from the, the hot sun and the wind, at least for one day. Then God causes that plant, that same plant to die the next day. And so now, You've got Jonah chilling on a hill in these unbearable elements and waiting for the destruction of Nineveh, but it's not happening. And he's just angry. He says, Lord, I, I am so angry, Lord. I just want you to take my life. Kill me now, Lord. If you're not going to kill them, kill me, because this is unbearable. And again, like, I'm just amazed at 
God's gracious response. Because I, I just, I don't know why God didn't write him off. Thank God, thank God that, or Jonah should be grateful that I'm not God, because I would have written him off. <laughs> but God's response is, Jonah, you valued the life of that plant. You didn't take any pleasure in the destruction of that plant. Why should I take pleasure in the destruction of my creation? Yeah, Nineveh may be evil, but these are people I created with, and they bear my image. They have inherent value and worth. I still value them. Why should I not value them the way you valued this plant? And that's how the story ends. It ends with that question. And while obviously the question was meant to kind of prick Jonah's heart, I think it's also meant to cause us to stop and reflect. And so I'm going to kind of work through some of those reflections, those takeaways with you guys right now. One of the questions that, I mean, some people may wonder is why, why did God need to judge Nineveh in the first place? I mean, we live in a society that is like, yeah, don't judge, don't judge me. But even more so, it's like, well, Nineveh, they're not God's chosen people. They're not Christians. They're not, because Christians weren't around, but they're not God's Jewish people. Like, why is God going to judge them? And what's kind of interesting, I, I think is interesting, when Jonah was going on his little rant, he's like, like, as if it was bad that God is gracious and merciful, if he remembered the rest of the quote from Exodus, because I think he was quoting Exodus, Exodus 34, God tells us that he, besides being gracious and compassionate and merciful and slow to anger and willing to relent from judgment, he also tells us that he's not going to let the guilty go unpunished. He's not going to let them be clear of their guilt. And throughout the Old Testament, God tells us several times that, hey, I hate the wicked. I hate those who do violence. And I cannot condone, I cannot look the other way at evil. And what the picture that uh, the Old Testament paints is that God takes sin seriously. And this, that's our first takeaway, is God that takes sin seriously. And there's two reasons why I think that the Bible explains why. And the first is that our sin it creates a relational wedge between us and God. Um, our sin functions as this like cosmic rebellion, almost like this cosmic insurrection where we try to take God and kick him out of his rightful throne as king and we try to place ourselves in that throne. And when we look at the Garden of Eden with what Adam and Eve did, that's kind of what they did. They're like, hey, I know that you, you're kind of, you created us, you've done all these amazing things, but we're not going to really live like that. We're going to live like we are kings and queens. We want to be rulers of our own life. And really at the heart of sin is this assassination attempt. It's an assassination attempt on God's character. We're saying, God, you're not really good. You're not really loving. You don't really have my best interests at heart. You're not really wise. It's like, we don't, at the end of the day, we don't really trust that God's got your and my best interest at heart. And I mean, that's what Jonah was doing too. Jonah looked at what God was doing and God sparing Nineveh, Jonah thought that was evil. So Jonah was literally doing something, calling something evil that God is doing. And the second reason why that I think God takes sin seriously is because sin harms us. It harms people. It harms me. My sin harms me. My sin harms those around me. And it harms those relationships in my life. And if we think about it, 
So if God truly is all-knowing, he's all-loving, he's all-wise, and he's the creator of everything, creator of you, me, and all of life, wouldn't it make sense that the creator knows better than the creation how we ought to live, how we ought to function, what's best for us? I mean, is, is God really just trying to be this vindictive, controlling authoritarian when he tells us, hey, you ought to value life. And therefore, you shouldn't take it. Therefore, murder is wrong. Is he being controlling or is he teaching us what's actually for our own good? I mean, let's take another example. Let's look at sex. God tells us that sex is good. And yet, he says that it's only good in this specific context of marriage between a man and a woman. So is God trying to be a Debbie Downer, a party pooper, because he's saying, hey, anything outside of that design, it's not good for you guys? Or is he actually telling us, no, this is what's for your good. And all these other things outside of it, they're not for your good. And there's a variety of ways that God has called us to live and he's called us away from. And when we reject that, we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, and we hurt those relationships that we're in. You know, we see this kind of throughout the story of Jonah with Jonah's attitude towards the Ninevites. But I want to, before I jump into that, I kind of want to rewind, just kind of set the stage for that discussion. I want to look at Genesis 1 when God is creating us. He's creating the, he's just got done creating the world. He's got done creating the animals, the plants, all this stuff. Then he gets to humanity and he says, we're going to create human beings in my image, like God's image. So he created you and me, male and female, he says, in his image. And what that means is we are from the moment of conception to the moment of our death, carrying this incredible value and worth. That's how God looks at us. He looks at us as these valuable, prized, treasured possessions. And I don't understand it because he looks at Nineveh and he has that same heart. We see that same heart of God for humanity at, whole, at, humanity at large, for the Ninevites. He values them, he values their life, and he doesn't take pleasure in their destruction. And while God values humans and he treasures us, we kind of tend to have a tendency to do the opposite. We devalue, we dehumanize. And we see that in Jonah you know, Jonah did that very obviously along, like we would say he was, had this very extreme prejudice based off of maybe like racial lines. But the reality is we're not too much different from Jonah. We can all struggle with that. We, we all have ways that we can struggle. We might struggle with tribalistic prejudice. Some of us, maybe it is more external factors. Maybe we struggle with having like this prejudice based off of whether it's race, gender, or socioeconomic status. We look at people and say, oh, well, that racial group, they're the real reason why we have problems in our country. Or men, well, they're just patriarchal oppressors and they're the real cause. Or maybe it's women. Women are just these manipulative, ignorant people. Or it's poor people who are uh, lazy and just sapping, you know, are sapping the resources out of our society. Or maybe it's, you know, we're saying it's those stinking rich people, man. They're controlling and oppressing us. These heart postures that we have towards other people, these, these sinful ones, they're going to translate into sinful actions. And maybe that's not where you guys struggle. Maybe you guys don't necessarily struggle with the outward, but maybe some of us, it's the inward. 
We, we struggle looking at people that are different from us with its, maybe it's ideology or politics. And maybe, I don't know if you've ever thought this or heard this, but maybe you're like in your head, it's like, man, they're woke or they're Christian nationalists. And we, in our heart of hearts, we say, screw them. I'm, and we write them off. You know, God, um, God used, about seven years ago, God brought me to a point where he helped me see this in my life. I had this ugly prejudice. And so just kind of set up for several years of my life, I got to work in really amazing environments. I, um, a lot of, there was a lot of poverty, a lot of crime, a lot of addiction, but I loved it. I loved being in some of that, what I would say is chaos. And I also happened to work in a lot of environments, like whether it was overseas or in the certain inner cities, where I also happened to be the racial minority. And it was tons of fun. We all loved each other. We all got along. We enjoyed it. But one of the things that I didn't realize was happening during my years there, and this wasn't anyone else's fault but my own, and I just want to be clear when I'm saying this, um, I'm not saying this is right. This is just who, who I was, where I was several years ago. But I'd begun developing a prejudice in my heart against white people, especially like wealthy white people. And it's ugly. I, I, I just, I hate saying this out loud because it's really an ugly part of my heart. But the reality is, so you fast forward a few years, I'm now in, back in Portland. I'm looking for a job that's going to double as an internship. And I have a couple people send me this job. It's this missions pastor type of job where I get to help oversee local missions. I get to help oversee local missions. I was like, man, I'm looking at the job description. I'm like, man, I'm like a little kid in the candy shop. I'm like, oh, this is sweet. Until I realized... I was like, oh, crap. I was like, this is at Rolling Hills. <laughs> I, man, I am so glad that you guys can laugh because like, my heart feels so sad at the, the evil just posture that I have towards people. Um, yeah, gosh, got me a little distracted there. Um, so it's like, it was like Rolling Hills, and in my heart and in my mind, what was going on was like, I don't want to have anything to do with a bunch of hoity-toity rich white people. Um, but by God's grace, thank God for God's grace, because he put people in my life to help me push me along in the process. So I continued to apply and God forbid, and I didn't want to admit this too much, but my dad was sitting in the front row last time, but he used my parents and my dad to really help reveal this sinful attitude in my heart. I mean, I'm almost 30 years old and I still needed my dad to help reveal to me some of the shortcomings in my life. And I think my daughter's in here and Ziva, just remember this, that as a parent... <laughs> I'm never going to grow old of like being able to love you and lovingly point out the ways that our lives aren't lining up with his. Okay, so either way, God graciously pointed, me, pointed out this shortcoming in my life. And through, uh, man, I, I'm so grateful that God brought, brought me here because through these people and then through just even starting to work here, God brought healing to my heart. He helped realign my heart to his and he used a lot of you guys in it. There's a lot of you guys that were part of that journey for me. And I share this story not because, obviously it's not because I'm proud of it. If you think I'm proud of it, I, I'm, I'm telling you I'm not. Um, the, the reality is I want us to stop and reflect. It's, that's the last thing for us that we also need to be willing to do is stop and reflect. You know, we need to be willing to ask God that hard question. I know it's not easy. I know it's not fun and it can be really painful, but asking God, Lord, is my heart lined up with yours? Is the way that I look at other people, does it reflect your heart? 
Or are the actions, my actions, the way that I'm living my life, do they reflect your heart or do they reflect a heart posture that's questioning the goodness of who you are? Am I questioning the goodness of your ways? And I know that like, this is going to sound weird, but God does answer that question. And when he does, when we ask him, it really is him being gracious. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. And it's not fun. But God helping us realign our hearts is crucial. And I know that like sometimes that can be a scary process because I don't know if you guys are like me. I'm kind of messed up. I'm pretty messed up. And like that story of me not wanting to come here is just the tip of the iceberg. And if you guys are wondering, like, well, is there hope for me? The answer is yes. Jesus tells us, and he, he kind of points it out several times, but he says, all the Old Testament, they help point to me, to Jesus. And we can go to Genesis. We go all the way back to Genesis 3 when God is dealing with Adam and Eve for their rebellion. And he tells them, hey, look, here's the consequence. One of the consequences is that you are going to be removed from the garden. So this relational wedge, you're going to start experiencing it from here on out. But he also gives them this promise. He says, I am going to also make a way for you guys to come back home to me. And so we see in the Old Testament, God's starting to point towards this future hope. And we see that future hope in the book of Jonah as well. Tell me if this sounds familiar. So God has this uniquely chosen messenger and this messenger falls asleep and is sleeping on the bottom of a boat in the middle of a violent storm. And then let's fast forward in this messenger's life. And now this messenger is willingly laying down his life for the sake of others. And shortly after that, that messenger is left for dead in what should have been his grave. And for three days, he was in that grave until he came back to experience new life. And yes, I'm talking about Jonah, but that is also Jesus. Jesus slept in the bottom of a boat in the middle of this violent storm. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you and me, for the sins of all of humanity. And Jesus died and was buried in the grave dead for three days before he came back to life. You see, the book of Jonah points us to this future hope. It's pointing us to the hope that you and I have. While we see God's faithfulness in the story to the sailors, we see God's faithfulness to Jonah, we see God's faithfulness to Nineveh, it's also pointing us to this, uh, this future hope that's for all of us, that God is going to be faithful to his promise to make a way for us to come back to him. And maybe some of you guys are kind of like wrestling with, well, am I really too far gone? Am I too far gone? And the, the, the short answer is no. And I don't mean to be like self-righteous, um, but if we look at Nineveh, like I'm being self-righteous on all of our behalf real quick, not just mine. But if we look at Nineveh, I mean, they were wicked. They were killing people, murdering, murdering people, being incredibly brutal to them. And yet God's heart for them was for them to come back. He wanted them to realign their hearts. He wanted Jonah to realign his heart. And this idea of realigning our hearts that's what repentance is. When God is calling us to repent, when you hear people talk about repentance, it's not simply just saying, oh, I'm sorry, or don't do X, Y, and Z bad thing. But God is saying, I want you to turn your behaviors and your heart towards me. And when he does, we have a savior that is willing to greet us 
We have a God who is eager for us to come back to him. He's not sitting there saying, oh man, your bad thing that you did, that surprises me. How dare you do that? God's not surprised by our past mistakes and God is not going to be surprised by our future mistakes. So we can come to God and we can be confident. We can be confident that, and this is something for all of us to remember, is that there's nothing that you or me can do that's going to make God love us more or less than he does right now. And there's nothing that you or me can do that's going to make him love us less than he already loves us right now. His love doesn't flow in waves like our, heart, like our faithfulness. When our heart's on fire for God, he still loves us. When our heart is away from God, he still loves us. Our call is to turn our lives, realign our hearts and actions back with his heart. And so I just want to take a moment and I'm going to pray. And if you guys would just pray with me, this is just a, a prayer of reflection for us all. Father, we, just, we are so grateful. When we look at the story of Jonah, how you are so faithful you're so gracious. You're faithful to those sailors. You are faithful to Jonah. You're faithful to the Ninevites. And you hint at us. You let us know that you're going to be faithful to us as well. God, we are so grateful for Jesus. We are so grateful that he has made a way for us to go back home to you. Lord, I just ask for all of us. Lord, search our hearts. Help us to see the ways in which our heart isn't reflecting yours. Our heart isn't lined up with yours. Whether it's attitudes, actions, behaviors, or somewhere else in our life, Lord, we ask that you help us see that. And Lord, I also just ask that you will put loving people in our lives that are willing to help walk us through this journey so we can experience this restoration, this realignment. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.